0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network, Buzz Burbank, news and comment. It can happen here. It's already started. This is Thursday, July 12th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Millions of people in the United States are worried, and our friends overseas and our neighbors to the north and south are worried about the ongoing and increasingly cozy relationship between the Trump government and Russia. Once again, we've learned of a development in that relationship, first from Russia. The White House confirmed it soon afterward, that Donald Trump would meet personally with Vladimir Putin this coming Monday in Helsinki, Finland. It doesn't appear Trump will scold Putin over the stealing of Crimea from Ukraine or his interference in our election process. On the contrary, shortly after the meeting was announced, Trump tweeted a defense for Russia, quoting that tweet, Russia continues to say they had nothing to do with meddling in our election. Trump went on to badmouth the FBI, James Comey, and a favorite target he shares with Putin, Hillary Clinton. Still, more than two years after the election in which Russia worked to hurt her campaign and to help Trump's. Make no mistake, wrote Virginia Senator Mark Warner, the president just gave Russia the green light to once again interfere in U.S. elections. Before the meeting was announced, Trump had not only praised Putin as a leader, but had called for Russia's return to the G7 economic summits. At one of his campaign rallies last week, Trump said to the mesmerized crowd, you know what? Putin's fine. He's fine we're all fine. When they meet Monday, Trump and Putin are expected to first meet privately, followed by a working breakfast and then a joint news conference. There's no stopping him, says a senior administration official who told The New Yorker he wants a meeting with Putin, so he's going to have a meeting with Putin. The New Yorker reports Trump's been hot to meet with Putin ever since the Russian leader got elected to another six-year term, and Trump has that meeting, despite warnings from his advisors about how this won't look good, with the Russia investigation still robustly underway. Putin's re-election victory got a hearty congratulations from Trump, despite the note from his advisors saying, do not congratulate, in all caps, in front of him during that phone call. Our friends overseas and our neighbors to the north and south are worried. They're worried about reality TV star Donald Trump negotiating with a man who rose to power through the Soviet KGB. The state's longtime allies saw how the summit went with Kim Jong-un, and they fear a repeat with Putin, making concessions and giving legitimacy to another authoritarian, including one that had threatened nuclear war and one that's messed with democracy around the world. Will Trump say he trusts Putin after saying he trusts Kim? Will he say, as he did of Kim, that Putin is beloved by his people? Our allies in NATO are worried and with good reason. Trump wrote a threatening letter to leaders of several of our NATO allies last week, including Canada, Germany, Norway, and Belgium. He scolded those four allies for spending too little on their own defense. Trump wrote the allies that the U.S. is losing patience with their failure, in his view. To uphold their parts of the NATO agreement and that the U.S. is considering a response to their alleged failures. Do it or else was the letter in a nutshell. And he's essentially called our allies deadbeats. And then he said it to their faces at this week's NATO summit. The New York Times quotes a former defense official as saying, Trump still seems to think that NATO is like a club that you owe dues to or some sort of protection racket where the U.S. is doing all the work protecting all these deadbeat Europeans while they're sitting around on vacation, and now he is suggesting there are consequences. Our friends overseas and our neighbors to the north and south are worried, especially after Trump's blow up at the G7 meeting last month. They were so concerned after bullying from Trump about defense spending this week and a threat this morning to leave NATO, as Putin would like, they've extended their NATO meeting in what's been described as an emergency session. Quoting one leader, it's like the world has gone crazy. And our allies are even more nervous that Trump's meeting with Putin next. In between, Trump's visiting the UK, where the welcome mat will be lined with 50,000 protesters. He'll mostly avoid them on his itinerary. Of the three overseas meetings on his calendar, Trump says the meeting with Putin, quote, may be the easiest. The pattern continues of Trump's praise of authoritarians and his scolding of our closest allies. He'll stop for a round of golf at one of his clubs in Scotland to unwind before the more congenial visit with Vladimir Putin. U.S. citizens are worried, especially after eight Republicans in Congress paid a visit to the Kremlin on the 4th of July, posing for Russian propaganda pictures. Americans are worried there was no discussion of Crimea or election meddling, no mention of the British couple poisoned that same day by the Soviet nerve agent that poisoned two other people in Britain earlier this year. The Republican lawmakers did not do what U.S. lawmakers normally do when they have occasion to visit Russia. They did not meet with any dissidents. And the expedition was unusual in another way. No Democrats. No Democrats were invited at Russia's insistence. Normally, lawmakers, American lawmakers, would refuse such a condition, opting to cancel the trip instead. But these are not normal times. The Trump Republicans were happy to spend Independence Day in Moscow. What Russia wants, and what these Republicans want, is warmer relations between the two countries. All that talk of Crimea and the sabotage of democracy, bygones for the Republicans, apparently. But many U.S. citizens and our longtime allies around the world are worried. About Trump and Russia. Before sending a delegation to Moscow, congressional Republicans stepped up their campaign to discredit and dismantle the Russia investigation. The Republican led House Judiciary Committee summoned Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to accuse him of stonewalling their demands for details on the Russia investigation, details that could and would be shared with Trump's Russia lawyers. Why are you keeping information from Congress? demanded the soon to be scandal plagued Jim Jordan of Ohio. That is not accurate, sir, responded Rosenstein firmly. Rosenstein may appear mild-mannered, but on this day he was visibly angry. Your use of this to attack me personally is deeply wrong, said Rosenstein, shaking his finger at Jordan. A Democrat on the committee, Illinois' Luis Gutierrez, warned Rosenstein about Republican motives. They want you, he said. They want to impeach you. They want to indict you. They want to get rid of you. Republicans have, in fact, discussed that option. But South Carolina's Trey Gowdy, of all people, led the charge at that hearing, barking at Rosenstein, if you have evidence of wrongdoing by any member of the Trump campaign, present it to the damn grand jury. Whatever you've got, finish it the hell up. Gowdy's words were ironic, slamming an investigation that's a year and a half old after he'd investigated Clinton and Benghazi for four years. Rod Rosenstein is reportedly still unhappy with the Trump White House over using his reasons to fire James Comey as a cover for the reason Trump gave on TV, the Russia thing. Republicans are not unhappy with the Trump White House, and they're working overtime to protect it. At the start of the 2016 presidential election campaign, when Ivanka Trump met an Olympic weightlifter named Dmitry, he offered to arrange a meeting between Vladimir Putin and Ivanka's dad, Who was hot to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Ivanka knew just who Dmitry should call about this. Her dad's lawyer, Michael Cohen. She gave Dmitry Cohen's phone number. Cohen, it's been established, was already hard at work on making Trump Tower Moscow happen. Trump signed a non-binding deal to build the thing on the same day as a primary debate against a wide field of Republicans. This marks the first time Ivanka's name has come up in a story about Russian contact with the Trump organization, but it's another reminder of what the feds appear to know about the contact between Russians and the president's lawyer and fixer at the time, Michael Cohen. It's been a busy few weeks for Mr. Cohen with a series of intriguing developments. Cohen just stopped referring to himself as personal attorney to President Trump. Cohen had earlier fired his own lawyers At about the time of my last report, Cohen resigned as deputy finance chair for the Republican National Committee. He gave the Russia investigation as a reason for quitting, saying he couldn't handle both responsibilities. And then this happened. In a 45-minute off-camera interview with ABC's George Stephanopoulos, Cohen sent a message that could be interpreted in two very different ways. It may have been a last call for a presidential pardon before Cohen flips and testifies for the prosecution but it sounds more like a flip. Cohen repudiated Russian attempts at political influence and added, I don't agree with those who demonize or vilify the FBI. That would be Mr. Trump and company. This from a guy whose home, office and hotel room had been raided by FBI agents who Cohen described as courteous and professional. The stakes appear to be high for Trump if his longtime lawyer and fixer were to tell the feds everything he knows about Trump and Russia. And he knows a lot. For now, Cohen faces finance charges and is under intense scrutiny by special counsel Robert Mueller's investigators, and he told Stephanopoulos, my wife, my daughter, and my son have my first loyalty and always will. I put family and country first, said Cohen, making it clear which direction he's leaning. This from the man who once said he'd take a bullet for Trump and do anything to protect the president. This from the man who paid $130,000 in hush money to a porn star for Trump but that loyalty may have faded over the past few months as Trump's refused to take Cohen's calls and the Trump White House has played down Cohen's role in Trump's business and personal affairs. Cohen has reportedly told friends he's tired of being portrayed as a villain and wants to clear his name. Sure sounds like a guy who's ready to flip. And then Cohen hired a new lawyer, New York's Guy Patrio, a former federal prosecutor whose specialty is plea bargaining. Patrio worked in the federal court's Southern District of New York, the same jurisdiction where Cohen's charged with financial crimes. And then Cohen hired another new lawyer, Lanny Davis, a longtime defender of Bill and Hillary Clinton. Cohen found someone who had defended Hillary Clinton every bit as fiercely as Cohen had defended Donald Trump, getting the cold shoulder as a thank you. Cohen's hired a lawyer who wrote a book arguing that the 2016 election was stolen from Clinton. Cohen now has better lawyers than Donald Trump, one to deal with prosecutors and one to be an attack dog. Lanny Davis has already gone to work after Trump's lawyer Rudy Giuliani said the administration isn't worried about Cohen and that Cohen should cooperate with the investigators and tell the truth. Cohen's new lawyer Lanny Davis tweeted that using the name Trump and or the name of his lawyer in the same sentence with the word truth is an oxymoron. Comedian Tom Arnold now producing a show for the Vice Channel, met with Michael Cohen recently in New York. Arnold later told interviewers of Cohen, this dude has all the tapes, this dude has everything. Arnold says he proposed that he and Cohen work together to take down Trump. Arnold says Cohen's wife, who was also present, used profanity to underscore that the Cohen family is all in. Tom Arnold later posted a pic of himself and Michael Cohen on Twitter for the world, including Donald Trump, to see. Cohen's being investigated for, among other things, that $130,000 hush money payment to the porn star who says she had a one-night stand with Trump. The publisher of the National Enquirer, meanwhile, is being investigated for dodging campaign finance laws by paying $150,000 in hush money to a former Playboy model who claims to have had a full-blown affair with Donald Trump. That Inquirer publisher is David Pecker, a friend of Trump's who published story after story during the campaign to promote Trump the candidate. The Inquirer published stories that disparaged Hillary Clinton. The one about Hillary's failing health was suggested by Trump himself, cell phone to cell phone, in a call to David Pecker. Six months to live screamed the headline in all caps. Pecker and Michael Cohen were in constant contact in the months before the election. The Inquirer sent stories, before publishing them, to Trump's lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen for approval. Cohen would sometimes fine-tune a headline or suggest a different photograph, one more flattering to Trump. Cohen now appears ready to flip, though, and Inquirer publisher David Pecker has now been subpoenaed to talk to Mueller's investigators. Yes, the Mueller investigation marches on and has, in fact, grown now using additional FBI and Justice Department personnel partly to avoid having to ask a Republican Congress for more money and partly to make sure the investigation doesn't go away regardless of what happens to Rod Rosenstein or Robert Mueller. There's further indication that Trump will not be interviewed by Robert Mueller. Rudy Giuliani has notified Mueller the White House was this close to refusing that interview unless Mueller can show evidence Trump himself may have committed a crime. Never mind that Mueller is also investigating the roles of those close to Trump during the campaign, including Michael Cohen, Mike Flynn, and Deputy Campaign Chairman Richard Gates. But former campaign chairman Paul Manafort is still refusing to budge. His lawyers say he's been in solitary confinement 21 hours a day, with an hour in the prison yard alone, and two hours with his lawyers. U.S. Marshals say solitary is the only way to ensure Manafort's security, and they say Manafort himself hasn't complained what with the phone and computers in his cell. But Manafort's lawyers complained that two hours is just not enough time out of the box for Manafort to mount a reasonable defense against a slew of charges, including conspiracy against the United States. The lawyer said meeting with Manafort just two hours a day would mean he wouldn't be ready for his July 25th trial date. They asked for a delay. Well, the judge solved the logistics problem without hesitation, ordering Manafort to be moved to the more conveniently located Alexandria City Jail, which presumably isn't quite so cushy. On reflection, Manafort and his lawyers then decided it best he not go to such a rough facility and ask the judge to rescind the order they had requested. But the judge was having none of it, ruling Manafort would get what he had requested, the much tougher Alexandria jail, which has been used to hold terrorists. The judge rules tomorrow on whether Manafort can push back his trial date to November as he's requested after the election. And the judge will also rule on Manafort's request for a change of venue to a county with a more Trump-friendly jury pool. Noteworthy, Manafort's lawyers ask for the delay after they saw what and how much the feds have gathered on their client. And while Manafort's held tough, the going has gotten tougher. A connection's been found between Manafort's bank fraud charges and the Trump campaign. On the verge of becoming the unpaid campaign chairman in 2016, Manafort got $16 million in loans from a banker who wanted a job in the campaign. It's the first connection between Manafort's money deals and the Trump campaign. Until now, this prosecution was about money. Now, Manafort's been caught apparently trying to sell influence in a political campaign. Robert Mueller has a lot on Manafort because Robert Mueller has gathered a lot of potential evidence. Millions and millions of documents, including emails and scores of electronic devices. With nearly two dozen indictments in just over a year, five subjects of the Russia investigation have already pleaded guilty and one has already done a month in prison. But the probe has expanded over the past year. There have been more court challenges than expected and Mueller needed help. The special counsel knew this Republican Congress wouldn't give him more money, so Mueller turned to the FBI to increase the number of investigators and to the Justice Department to increase the number of prosecutors, in addition to the 17-plus Mueller who've combed through all that potential evidence over the past year. But Mueller also knows that the party of Trump is out to get him and out to shut down the investigation. Finish it the hell up, barked Trey Gowdy to Rod Rosenstein. By sharing what he's got with other law enforcement offices, Robert Mueller is making sure that the evidence survives. He's already handed off the Michael Cohen case to New York Southern District and has involved FBI offices in New York, Alexandria, Virginia, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The federal investigation into Facebook continues, and it's gotten more wide ranging. That investigation now focuses on all the actions and statements of the social media giant, Facebook is now being investigated by the FBI, the Justice Department, the Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Federal Elections Commission over Facebook's dealings with the political dirty tricks organizers at Cambridge Analytica and Facebook's responses to that. Investigators want to know why, if Facebook learned of Cambridge Analytica's theft and abuse of data about users in 2015, that it waited until March of 2018 to report it just as the first investigation was being launched. That investigation includes a degree of focus on Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, who now has more money than financial whiz Warren Buffett. Zuckerberg may need that money, since fines from the Federal Trade Commission alone could total in the billions of dollars. At the Securities and Exchange Commission, the investigation is known as the Facebook Matter. The Chinese said they would retaliate, and they did, after Trump hit China with $34 billion in new trade tariffs, and it plans to do the same after Trump's threatened an additional $200 billion in new tariffs. Americans were already paying more for solar panels and metals products from washing machines on down, thanks to Trump's first round of tariff hikes. Now China's already retaliated with new tariffs on American meats and poultry, dairy and seafood, pet food, American whiskey and tobacco, and American-made vehicles. Now prices in the U.S. are headed upward for about 1,300 products with more price hikes on the way. Trump's tariffs are also hurting businesses he had promised to help. Man, you are messing up our market is what a South Dakota soybean farmer says he'd like to tell Trump. Trump's tariffs appear to be most threatening to his supporters, farmers and blue collar workers in what's known as the heartland. Trump's base. Because in retaliation, China is now upping its tariffs on American soybeans in retaliation for Trump's opening shots. The American people are concerned. 56% of us saying Trump's tariffs on China will kill jobs in the U.S. 73% of us believe the tariffs will lead to higher prices. It's an even bigger issue in the battleground voting districts ahead of this fall's congressional election. Ford and GM stocks fell on Wall Street in fear of the tariff war. General Motors says Trump's tariffs threaten American jobs and the bigness of GM at a time sales were already down. A trade representative for Ford, Coca-Cola, and Microsoft says, I think these tariffs are going to hurt the U.S. economy the head of the National Retail Federation, says American consumers are just one step closer to feeling the full effects of a trade war. Because it isn't just China retaliating, so are longtime allies, including our closest neighbors in Canada and Mexico. It's a dark day for global trade, says a former head of the European Union's Chamber of Commerce, who's located in China. Trade wars are good and easy to win, declared Trump. And now he's threatening that additional $200 billion in tariffs. Trump says he's surprised that the all-American motorcycle icon Harley-Davidson is moving some of its work overseas for the first time in its proud history because of Trump's trade war and the retaliation it's brought. Harley's stocks fell 6 percent, while the rest of the Dow fell nearly 500 points because of the trade war. Sixty people, five dozen workers, lost their jobs about a month ago at the Mid-Continent Nail Factory in a town called Poplar Bluff. Nails hold a lot of America together, and most of them are made by Mid-Continent in the heart of the very pro-Trump state of Missouri. As many as 500 of them may be let go as Trump's trade war progresses. The machinist union that represents the workers at Harley-Davidson in Wisconsin, they're worried that job cuts will follow these new overseas facilities. The Tax Foundation projects that nearly 49,000 jobs will be gone once the tariff hikes from both sides are fully in place. Jobs are not being lost in China. As the trade war escalates, China can absorb the pain through its excessive trade surplus. Jobs are being lost here by a surprised Donald Trump. There's been other labor news. The Supreme Court has ruled it unconstitutional to make non-union members pay union dues even when the non-union members benefit from the union's negotiations with management. Meanwhile, a federal judge has blocked Kentucky's plan to make many Medicaid recipients work, get job training, or do volunteer work. Mandatory volunteers. The law was to have gone into effect this week. Now it won't, thanks to this federal judge. Expect more lawsuits as other states prepare to implement their Medicaid work requirements. From appearances, any fruit from the Trump summit with Kim Jong-un has already begun to rot on the vine. No longer a threat, tweeted Trump. Trump had boasted the world was safer and could sleep better knowing North Korea was denuclearizing. Only it wasn't. U.S. intelligence has now reported that North Korea has increased its production of nuclear fuel and that it might try to hide those facilities to get even more concessions from Trump. Intelligence says it has evidence, fresh evidence on this. North Korea has extensive experience in hiding its weapons facilities. U.S. intelligence believes Kim Jong-un will cling to the nukes he believes are essential to North Korea's survival. Intelligence believes Kim is lying to this president, just as he and his father and grandfather did to other presidents. But this time, it's a president who is eager to hear success, or at least the perception of success. Intel believes Kim has no intention of delivering on his reported willingness to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. Quoting an American scholar on Asian affairs, North Korea remains free to manufacture more nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles, and other weapons of mass destruction. No longer a threat, tweeted Trump. Mike Pompeo of Kansas, now Trump's Secretary of State, went to North Korea last week to pave the way for denuclearization talks. We can presume the talks did not go well. Sure, Pompeo called them productive, describing good-faith negotiations that he says made significant progress, but that description doesn't just vary slightly from the assessment from North Korea, which called the talks gangster-like, cancerous, and regrettable. North Korea says the U.S. approach had brought us to a dangerous stage that could rattle their willingness for denuclearization. But North Korea says it still has faith in Donald Trump. In the meantime, Kim Jong-un and Chinese President Xi Jinping have agreed to continue to work together to get U.S. troops out of South Korea. In a summit of their own, the two leaders committed to sending home nearly 29,000 American soldiers. This is Kim and Xi. Trump, against the advice of U.S. military leaders, agreed with Kim and Xi about bugging out. Trump says our military drills there with South Korea are costly and too provocative toward North Korea. He's already canceled military exercises there for the time being. That's one of the concessions he made with Kim for a denuclearization that doesn't appear to be happening. It's an idea proposed to Trump in a phone chat with Vladimir Putin. Kim Jong-un met with Putin this past week in Moscow. We love you. Now get out, In the months before Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement from the U.S. Supreme Court, Trump praised him, and the Trump family drew closer to Kennedy's friends and family. The White House got plum jobs for some of the people who were important to Justice Kennedy. And then they told Kennedy that if he planned to retire, the time to do it would be now. Trump and his party didn't want to gamble on what might happen if they lost control of the Senate in this fall's midterm election. They did not want to leave to chance Democrats' refusal to confirm Trump's choice to replace Kennedy, just as Republicans did when it was Obama's turn to pick a justice. They told Kennedy he should retire now if he wanted to preserve his legacy. In the 2016 campaign, Trump promised conservatives he'd change the direction of the high court more to their liking. Conservatives had already won three Supreme Court victories in the past month against voting rights, against abortion, and for Trump's Muslim ban. But Trump wanted a court more solidly conservative, no more moderates, no more swing votes. He promised his supporters a court that would overturn the Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion 45 years ago. With the sometimes moderate Kennedy out of the way, Trump could make a second Supreme Court pick before reaching the halfway mark of his first term and lock in a solid conservative majority on that court for the next three or four decades. It's a moment the religious right has prayed for for the past three or four decades. They wanted to play down their excitement about what was about to happen. It's part of the reason they voted for a man with a personal history that contradicts their own religious teachings. They didn't care about Trump's other reason for wanting to replace Anthony Kennedy. With an advanced promotion rivaling that of a TV reality show, Trump announced his replacement choice Monday night in prime time. He nominated someone who is in fact qualified to carry on Justice Kennedy's legacy. He chose one of Kennedy's former law clerks who spent the past 10 years as a circuit court judge in D.C., Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Age 53 and healthy, Kavanaugh, if he's confirmed, could be on the bench for the next 30 years, about the same as his mentor. Republicans are ecstatic. Democrats are apoplectic. Democrats are convinced Kavanaugh will help Trump overturn Roe v. Wade. Kavanaugh was the only one of three circuit court judges who voted it would be okay if the Trump administration prevented a migrant teenager from getting an abortion. In Kavanaugh's dissenting opinion, he wrote that the Supreme Court has held that the government has permissible interest in favoring fetal life and refraining from facilitating abortion. Kavanaugh has also ruled against Environmental Protection Agency rules enacted during the Obama years. Kavanaugh has also voted against Net Neutrality and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and he's voted against a ban on semi-automatic rifles. He's leaned against the Affordable Care Act. He took part in the Bush administration's black site and interrogation discussions and then denied that to members of the Senate Judiciary Committee when Kavanaugh was confirmed for that D.C. Circuit Court gig. And although all of these things will please Trump's voter base, there's still that other reason for choosing Brett Kavanaugh. There were 20 names on Trump's first list of possible Supreme Court nominees, all of them as conservative as Kavanaugh. So why Kavanaugh? There were plenty of other conservative judges, many of whom would have been easier to get confirmed by the Senate. So why Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh's name was added to that list late last year, long after the original list was made. Why? Why Kavanaugh over all the others? Kavanaugh had argued that presidents should not be distracted from their important work by lawsuits, criminal investigations, or even questions from a prosecutor. The constitutional remedy for a crooked president, wrote Kavanaugh, is impeachment by Congress, and only that. This is the same Kavanaugh who helped impeach Bill Clinton and worked for the Bush administration. That was the political side of Brett Kavanaugh. This was the judge Trump needed now, one who believed a president shouldn't even be questioned that he or she shouldn't be investigated. Kavanaugh's name was added as the Russia probe was starting to heat up just before Christmas. Throughout American history. There has never been a ruling on whether a president can be investigated, questioned, subpoenaed, or indicted. Can a president pardon themselves? Can they pardon anyone who could implicate them in a crime? With those questions likely to come up in court soon, Trump chose Brett Kavanaugh as his second Supreme Court pick, a justice who believes the president is above the law unless Congress decides otherwise. Kavanaugh is scheduled for confirmation in October, just before the midterm election. Democrats who remain in the minority in Congress are doing what they can to stop or at least delay a confirmation vote on Kavanaugh until after the midterms. It's a long shot. But that's the deadline Trump was trying to beat when he drew closer to Justice Anthony Kennedy and then suggested that Kennedy retire. Enter Judge Kavanaugh, who believes a president should not be the subject of an investigation, even though this one already is. The Grapes of Wrath for Migrant Children. The Resistance Lives. Pruitt, We Barely Knew Ya, Civility, and Bob Seska, after this. Anytime's a good time to sign up for Amazon Prime, but right now is the best time because Amazon Prime Day is coming, and it only comes once a year. It's a sale and a half that lasts a day and a half. The Prime Day sale starts at 3 p.m. Eastern on Monday, July 16th, and it runs till midnight Eastern on Tuesday the 17th. It's only for Prime members, but you can get into the sale with a free trial membership. Amazon is so confident you'll like what you see, they're offering a month of free shipping on most items and all the other Prime benefits, including movies, TV shows, music, and books, plus access to this once-a-year sale. Do it right now while you're listening, or hit pause. Get that Prime membership free trial now to get in on the sale of the year. Just click the Amazon button on my webpage to join. I get a small bounty when you do that. The same is true for Amazon Music Unlimited audible audiobooks, Kindles, and the packages for students, gamers, kids, and grocery shoppers. Cancel whenever you like, but you'll love being a Prime member, and you'll love the annual Prime Day sale from 3 p.m. Eastern Monday, July 16th to midnight Tuesday the 17th. My page, Amazon button, free trial, big Prime Day sale. We were barely out the door from my last report when a cascade of cruelty befell the migrants and their children courtesy of the Trump administration. On that day, I reported that the Trump government was preparing to shelter as many as 20,000 migrants on four American military bases. The military was now part of Trump's zero-tolerance policy, and as you will hear, the zero-tolerance policy would become part of the U.S. military. After the uproar about children being taken from their families at the border, Trump ordered that families be kept together, and that would require a lot of housing fast. A place to store the immigrants, a la the Japanese internment camps during World War II. So four military bases were chosen to house the kids and their families. That development and others threw an already chaotic zero-tolerance policy into even more chaos. We learned from Health and Human Services that hundreds more migrant kids may have been separated than we were first told. HHS Secretary Alex Azar admitted the separation program had begun before we'd learned of it, but promised the number of separated kids would not exceed 3,000. The next day in court, we learned that HHS had lost 38 children it had taken into custody. 19 of them have just been released into the U.S., and officials do not know where they are. The other 19 who are out there were released after their parents Had already been deported. The law says migrant children must be released from custody in under 20 days. So the Trump administration asked the judge if it could keep the whole family for longer, including the kids. On Tuesday of this week, the judge said no. The Trump government was still holding separate from their families thousands of migrant children at that point. Trump said they would be reunited with their families after official comments that it might not happen. But there was no plan to make it happen and no tangible effort. The confusion was apparent in emails obtained by the New York Times. The cruel intentions were even more apparent. We learned this past week that the U.S. Army has been discharging recruited immigrants. The immigrants were part of a post-9-11 program that gave them a path to citizenship as a thank you for defending the United States. But that promise by the United States was broken, and these servicemen and women were discharged, according to the Associated Press, and could be deported, and they were not told why they were discharged. We don't know how many, but immigration lawyers say there are at least 40 more at risk. It was my dream to serve in the military, said a man from Brazil who continued, this country has been so good to me, I thought it was the least I could do to give back to my adopted country and to serve in the United States military. He thought wrong in the Trump era, Despite Trump's claims, he wants a merit-based immigration system. A Pakistani man said he cried a lot when he was booted out and he fears deportation is next. I love the U.S., he says, and I was so honored to be able to serve this great country, spoken like an American. Not that it matters. Trump's Justice Department this week admitted it may have mistakenly separated a family of U.S. citizens. Chaos and it's not just at the southern border, from Edmonton comes word of a Canadian jogger who accidentally crossed into the U.S. and was detained by U.S. Border Patrol for two weeks. And on one of these afternoons, Melania Trump was off to the border to see the kids, or at least 55 of them. She advised them to be kind and to be nice. The First Lady had boarded and disembarked from her flight wearing a jacket that featured graffiti as its fashion statement. It read, I really don't care, do you? The White House swears it wasn't about the immigrants that Trump has called a danger to our country. Melania had the presence of mind not to wear the jacket during her brief visit with those 55 kids. It wasn't until that Thursday evening that we learned Trump's zero tolerance policy was, for all intents and purposes, history, thanks to his executive order that kept families together. Emails obtained by CNN show that Customs and Border had stopped arresting the adults crossing the southern border. It wasn't in Trump's order, but it did mean that the border agents no longer had to snatch children from the arms of their mothers. Jeff Sessions' Justice Department kept insisting that zero tolerance was still in effect even though Border Patrol had decided on some tolerance for migrants and refugees. But Trump's fierce stand on immigration continued beyond that day. We cannot allow these people to invade our country, tweeted Trump, on his way to play a round of golf at his club in Virginia, with no mention of the crying children his administration had ripped from their parents. When somebody comes in, he tweeted, we must immediately, with no judges or court cases, bring them back from where they came. Trump was proposing that a country whose system of justice is based on the due process of law, he was proposing denying due process to immigrants, even though it's been ruled the Constitution's Fifth Amendment promises due process to every person on U.S. soil. That interpretation could change, of course, with new faces bolstering an already conservative Supreme Court, This morning we learned from CNN that the Trump administration plans to now turn away at the border thousands of people seeking refuge from violence in their home countries, seeking asylum without giving those folks a chance to plead their cases. Trump also tweeted that Republicans should stop wasting their time on immigration. He may have a point. A House vote on immigration had to be delayed last week when it became apparent it would have failed to pass. Trump and the Supreme Court are now free to take it from here. With the reunification of children and parents making almost no progress, a federal judge in California stepped in. Ruling on an ACLU lawsuit, the judge ordered an end to the deporting of parents without their children. He ordered an end to all family separations by immigration officials and border agents, and he ordered the Trump administration to reunite the kids with their parents within 30 days, within two weeks, if the kids were under age five. The Trump administration asked for more time as the deadline approached with only a few families reunited. The judge said no to that request. And that's when we learned that fewer than a third of the kids had been reunited with their families. It was on July 5th that we learned border agents were doing DNA tests on the kids to verify they were being returned to their actual parents. But the Trump administration faced one defeat after another in courtrooms. On Tuesday of this week, a federal judge threw out key parts of a Jeff Sessions Justice Department lawsuit that would have allowed it to punish cities, counties, and states that give sanctuary to migrants. There have been stories of kindness and compassion among our Border Patrol agents throughout the Trump zero-tolerance policy, but there have been stories of cruelty as well. Some agents of Trump's program seem to relish in Trump's hatred of immigrants. A National Guard soldier is now facing punishment for posting about the migrants on Facebook the words, they're lucky we aren't executing them. He posted it on a page that was raising money for the legal aid for the migrants and for their educations. He signed his hateful comment, just a young buck serving his country. The Alabama National Guard is investigating. The week before, an Oregon Department of Transportation employee was placed on leave after posting, I personally think they should shoot them all at the border and call it good. It'll save Americans billions on our taxes. But in the words of the late David Bowie, this is not America. A nationwide Washington Post poll shows citizens opposed to Trump's policy of taking children from their migrant parents, and they oppose it by an overwhelming margin. Slimmer majorities, but majorities just the same, oppose Trump's border wall and his restrictions on immigrants bringing family members into the U.S. A closer look at immigration polling, however, reveals that only 44 percent of us agree with Trump's toughness on immigration. That leaves a majority of 56 percent who either want immigration rules loosened, 16 percent, plus the 40 percent who think the immigration level we've been seeing is just fine. 56 percent do not want to get tougher. That means a majority of Americans do, in fact, oppose Trump's immigration policies, and those who do oppose them have become more vocal and more active the harsher those policies have become, like when those policies take children from their parents and put the children in cages. Right now, the louder voices are coming from the left. The resistance lives. It started small. On the eve of my last report, a flight attendant for one of the major airlines wrote, I will no longer be complicit this veteran of nearly 30 years in the air wrote to the Houston Chronicle that he would never again work a flight that carried migrant children away from their parents. The flight attendant said many of his co-workers felt the same. He says he heard from one coworker who said he was told at first the kids on his flight were part of a soccer team. That flight attendant says he was later told no, they're migrant kids on their way to a child detention center. And then there were the protests. On Saturday, June 30th, protesters marched in Lafayette Square in D.C. right across the street from the White House to chant, families belong together. Trump wasn't there to see it. He was playing golf at his club in New Jersey. There were more than 700 other rallies from one coastline to the other that day and from the northern border to the controversial one to the south. There were protests in red states as well as blue, protests in Atlanta, El Paso, and Salt Lake City. There were protests in all 50 states and a few in other countries. Democrats, including Elizabeth Warren, turned out, along with stars from stage, TV, music, and movies. The resistance lives. Senator Warren is a leading contender among Democrats who might be the party's next nominee. So is Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, but she took a stronger stand. She joined other progressives in calling for the dismantling of ICE, the Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Other Democrats argued that eliminating ICE is too radical, too liberal for the voters. But the resistance lives, even in a few Republicans. After 30 years, as a Republican political strategist, Steve Schmidt has seen enough. He has now renounced what is now the party of Trump and will be urging all Americans to vote Democrat this November. It was on July 4th that a protester against Trump's immigration policy broke away from her group and began to scale the Statue of Liberty up the back of its long robe. She vowed to hold her ground, or at least Liberty's robe, until all the children were released she did not get to carry that out. After a three-hour standoff, she was finally snagged by police and apologized for putting them at risk and for playing hard to get. But the resistance lives, and in some very kind ways, a San Francisco couple moved by pictures of tearful migrant children were reminded of their own toddler, a two-year-old girl. They'd heard that if they had the money, a lot of these migrant parents could just walk out of jail on bond and retrieve their kids. So this couple set up a fundraiser with a goal of $1,500. By the time we stopped keeping track, they had raised $15 million. Donations poured in from around the world, including the PR-challenged Mark Zuckerberg. But most of the millions came in small amounts from average Americans who were also moved by what they had seen, moved and outraged. Even in kind ways, the resistance lives part of the media time magazine specifically did its part the cover of its july 2nd issue featured a photo of trump standing and looking downward at his feet a crying migrant child looking up at him the two cropped photos are juxtaposed to make it appear trump and the tearful child are making eye contact the bright red cover featured the sarcastic caption welcome to america It stood out from the several other covers Time has used to criticize Trump, and it was a far cry from the fake Time cover that hung in a Trump facility until Time ordered it be taken down for copyright reasons. Yeah, let's say copyright reasons. The resistance is very much alive across the entire country and in nearly every walk of life. People spoke out against Trump's immigration policies in other ways over this tumultuous two and a half weeks, There was that whole thing about White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders and her party being asked to leave the Red Hen restaurant in Lexington, Virginia, about 200 miles outside of D.C. After hearing concerns from the chef and the staff, the owner of the Red Hen informed Ms. Sanders that because she is part of the Trump administration and a fierce defender of his policies, she needed to leave. Trump supporters, many of whom had worn profane t-shirts aimed at Hillary Clinton, were now trolling the restaurant with bad reviews on Yelp and making fake reservations over the phone. Outside the restaurant, they staged protests. The place was shut down for nearly two weeks. America's culture war was now being fought on the front lines. There are divisions within the Democratic Party that would never be tolerated by Republicans. Among these is the Maxine Waters issue. Waters is a California congressman who leads the charge against Donald Trump. Like Trump, she speaks her mind. Since his inauguration, Maxine Waters has called Trump a scumbag, immoral, indecent, and inhumane. She calls his staff the Kremlin clan. Inspired by Sarah Sanders' ejection from a restaurant, Waters recently encouraged people to let their displeasure be known when they saw a Trump administration official while that official is dining or shopping. Anything to disrupt their lives while they are in public. A public shaming. For Waters, it has meant death threats threats to assassinate or hang or lynch her. But Maxine Waters hasn't flinched. If you shoot at me, she told an outdoor crowd, you better shoot straight. The threats came from conservatives who say they want more civility in politics. That's the same party that threatened to lock up an opposition candidate led by a man whose specialties include insults. A demand for civility from a party led by a president who repeated his Pocahontas attack on Senator Elizabeth Warren and insulted the IQ of Congresswoman Maxine Waters to a frighteningly enthusiastic crowd in Montana. But Democratic leaders including Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer say Waters has gone too far and that just because many Republicans have been in civil, there's no reason for Democrats to do the same. Republicans would never have this debate. Democrats are now divided over civility and when it's appropriate to abandon it momentarily. The sudden Republican reversal on civility was inspired by the restaurant ejection of Sarah Sanders and the public harassment of other Trump officials, from the now-gone EPA Secretary Scott Pruitt to Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen to Advisors Kellyanne Conway and Stephen Miller, former advisor Steve Bannon, and even Senate Leader Mitch McConnell. McConnell was chased out of a restaurant by an angry lunch crowd over the weekend in his home state of Kentucky at the Bristol Bar and Grill in Louisville, not far from the nearest immigration office, where a demonstration happened to already be underway. Word spread quickly on social media that McConnell was in the hood. This time, they called him Turtlehead and shouted about migrant children in cages. It was the second time in two weeks the Republican leader had been confronted by protesters while living his life. Kellyanne Conway brushed off the fellow grocery shopper who sneered, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. What am I going to do, asked the Jersey girl, break down on the canned vegetable aisle? Stephen Miller now sees wanted posters that bear his picture on lampposts in his neighborhood. When Miller ordered $80 worth of sushi from a nearby restaurant, a bartender called out to him as he carried the bags of fish along a sidewalk back to his place. Miller turned to see what the bartender wanted, the bartender gave him the middle finger, a double pumper. Miller decided to throw away the 80 bucks worth of sushi out of an abundance of caution. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon was confronted by a woman in a used bookstore who called him a piece of trash. This is not a new idea, public shaming. Karl Rove, the architect of the George W. Bush presidency, once looked out his window and saw more than a hundred protesters on his lawn. But the discussion of civility in the Trump era has divided Democrats again with those who want to maintain it no matter what and those who believe time's up on the higher ground approach. Democrats are debating how hard they should be on the Trump administration and his supporters after Trump had tweeted the restaurant that showed Sarah Sanders the door was filthy when in fact it is not. A left-wing rebellion within the party and the resistance to change by Democratic leaders threatens to break the Democratic Party into pieces. The greatest division in the Democratic Party is still the one between those who support Bernie Sanders and those who supported Hillary Clinton. It's a struggle between moderates and progressives competing for the same goal, Democratic votes, or at least the defeat of Trump Republicans. If the recent congressional race in New York is any indication, the party's most progressive candidates can expect more success. There, a rising star in the Democratic establishment, a top-ranking incumbent lawmaker, was soundly beaten by a 28-year-old woman who won with grassroots support and a breezy 57 percent of the vote. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had been an organizer for Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. In New York, progressives won, moderate zero. Being moderate just isn't in fashion this year in the age of Trump. In Republican races around the country, the Trumpiest Republican is winning those races. On the Democratic side, the most anti-Trump candidates are winning in certain districts. One new movement is asking Democrats to simply walk away. Salon.com's Bob Seska is worried about walking into the hands of
1: Vladimir Putin, or worse, Thank you, Buzz. Earlier this week, I published an article describing a new hashtag campaign in which Trumpers and a massive swarm of Russian trolls are attempting to undermine democratic unity by suggesting Dems should walk away from the party. And just in time for easily the most consequential midterms we've ever witnessed. The walkaway concept was allegedly started by a New York hairdresser named Brandon Straka, who claims to have been a Democrat who's fed up with the incivility of his former party. So Brandon decided to sign up with the Red Hat Army, which is kind of like abandoning traditional medicine and instead opting for leeches and bloodletting because traditional medicine seems antiquated. It's like leaving the rebellion in Star Wars and teaming up with the Empire because the rebels are too imperialistic. None of it makes any sense. It makes even less sense when we learn that most of the people who support the walkaway thing self-identify as conservative Trump supporters. And based on what I've seen, they've been this way for a long time. These non-former Dems are joined by countless Russian trolls participating in the 2018 resumption of hostilities against American democracy by the Kremlin. All of the AstroTurf markers are there, leading experts to believe this is undeniably a troll attack intended to manipulate public opinion, to squelch reasoned debate, and to manufacture artificial consensus around the idea of walking away. And who knows, it might be working, it might not be. The most important takeaway is not to engage these people. They're the furthest thing from rational, and you'll never successfully shame them, mainly because a solid chunk of them aren't even real. When you see the hashtag on social media, swiftly block and report that account. End them. Don't let them infect the rest of us the way they did in 2016. Since my article went live on Monday, I've been accosted by dozens of obvious trolls, and my only workable response has been to block as many as possible with the hope that Twitter and Facebook will take over from there. But I'm not holding my breath for that outcome, so it's up to each of us to banish them back to the phantom zone from which they emerged. The surge in this agitprop attack comes at a harrowing time. The president is currently in Brussels meeting with the heads of the other NATO member nations, and he's predictably acting as Putin's surrogate, undermining the organization and thus helping to empower Russia. I don't think any of the Trumpers who are helping the Kremlin trolls spread this walkaway hashtag realize that by helping Trump and Putin, they're precipitating the potential for another world war. Yeah, I know forecasting a world war sounds extreme, but these are extreme times. I'm not saying it's going to turn out this way necessarily. Yet given the manner in which events are transpiring, it's not difficult to see how we could end up in the worst case scenario. Here are the markers you should watch for along these lines. Step one, Trump's closed door summit with Putin. At least part of this meeting will be held in private without any other Americans in the room. That said, we can rest assured knowing the room's been bugged for sound by the Russian FSB. Nevertheless, it's entirely possible, if not likely, that Trump will decide to recognize Putin's incursion into Crimea, legitimizing the annexation. How do we know Trump's leaning in that direction? He said so on June 29th. Quote, we're going to have to see is what Trump said in response to a question about Crimea. Step two. Trump accepts Russian-occupied Crimea. If Trump indeed takes this step, perhaps while also lifting some of the sanctions, he'll provide Putin with enough latitude to invade elsewhere. The Baltics are in particular danger since these nations rest on the Russian border and have been coveted as a prize in Putin's quest to restore Russia's Soviet-era dominance of Eastern Europe. However, the Baltics, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania are NATO signatories, which means, step three, NATO nations must respond. While NATO was stymied and unable to stop or push back against Putin's invasion of Crimea and Ukraine, not a NATO member, invading one or more NATO countries, such as one of the Baltics, will trigger Article 5 of the Charter, amounting to an attack against all of NATO, forcing a military response against Russian forces. Step four. Meanwhile, Trump abandons NATO. At the command of his handler Putin, Trump's laying the groundwork as we speak, softening his loyalists to the concept of a benevolent Russia and a cheapskate NATO pact that's ripping off the United States, allegedly. Of course, Trump doesn't know what the goddamn hell he's talking about since NATO doesn't have a checking account requiring deposits from other nations. It doesn't matter, though, as long as his easily suckered disciples believe that's the case, and only around 40% of Republicans support the idea of the U.S. remaining a member. It's soft support, too, knowing how Trump is working hard to chip away at it. So let's say Trump pulls the trigger and walks away just in time for Putin to invade, say, Latvia what's next step five war question mark either nato will retaliate against putin's invasion pushing back militarily or else putin will be further emboldened to march into yet another country one thing to note here the russian economy is in the shitter a war however will surely boost that economy a win-win for trump's boss Furthermore, it's likely Trump will defend Putin's actions, aligning the United States against European democracies for the first time. Remember how I referred to this as extreme? Well, there it is. Don't worry, though, because mitigating events could pop up along the way to prevent this series of events. So hope isn't lost. Nevertheless, keep your eyes open for how Trump deals with NATO and what specifically emerges from this ill-conceived Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki. I hate to sound even more extreme, but the future of Western alliances and, in fact, the future of peace in the European continent hangs in the balance with an incompetent, intellectually vacant president at the helm. Tens, if not hundreds of millions of lives are at stake, and Trump is dragging us toward a world war. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment.
0: Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, The Daily Banter, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at realmnetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. Join me with him there every Tuesday. As expected, a lot happened over the past two weeks, including the resignation of EPA Director Scott Pruitt as corruption scandals closed in on him. Defended by Trump until the end, Pruitt faced 13 ethics investigations over the spending of millions of tax dollars on fancy pens, a secret phone booth, bulletproof vehicles, and luxury air travel. But there were also scandals that didn't directly involve money, apparently sketchy deals and favors with the very people Pruitt is supposed to regulate, secret email addresses, calendars and meetings, sketchy practices involving hiring and pay raises, and the use of government employees for personal business. Investigators hadn't even gotten to Pruitt's attempts to get his wife a job running a Chick-fil-A franchise or his planned use of red lights and siren to carve his driver's way through D.C. traffic. Of the roughly three dozen high ranking administration officials to be forced out of their Trump administration jobs, Pruitt is the sixth to simply be forced out. Two resigned, seven were fired outright, and so on. But Scott Pruitt's grandiosity extended beyond all of that, or at least his survival instinct did, with more investigations of him cropping up. CNN reports that in early spring, When Trump was again especially frustrated with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Pruitt asked Trump directly if he could have Sessions' job for a while. Pruitt offered to serve as the temporary head of the Justice Department, replacing the current AG who had recused himself from the Russia probe to the great chagrin of Trump. Pruitt wouldn't recuse under his offer, and after 210 days in office, he pledged to return to Oklahoma to run for office there. Trump's advisors reportedly shut down Pruitt's idea. Pruitt's plan didn't work out, and neither did his job at the EPA. He's been replaced by his deputy, a former coal industry executive named Andrew Wheeler, who's expected to be as fierce as Pruitt at stripping environmental regulations. On his way out the door, by the way, Scott Pruitt created a loophole that allows diesel truck makers to build engines that release 55 times more air pollutants. So much has happened over these past two weeks. There's just no way to give each story the time and detail it deserves, but we can capsulize. There was Trump's plan to invade Venezuela. He pushed the idea of a military invasion to his advisors last year, but they pushed back, warning it would probably backfire. Quoting CNN source, an official with knowledge of Trump's proposal says... The president says a lot of things. He just thinks out loud. It's an idea, by the way, that Trump has not taken off the table. There's Trump's new plan to reorganize the government, including combining the departments of labor and education. The plan would make it easier to cut money from what are essentially programs for the nation's well-being, social welfare, as it's known. But the Trump administration wants to draw clear lines on what is or isn't welfare. Trump's proposing putting SNAP, the food stamp program, under a new agency that has the word welfare in its title. Welfare is a term Trump and many Republicans use to describe basic benefit programs like education and jobs. Medicare and Social Security are also in the sights of many Republicans, but so far Trump has rejected touching either of those hot potatoes. What Trump will do, according to the NAACP, is conduct a war on the poor. We learned the Trump government had opposed a World Health Organization resolution endorsing breastfeeding as beneficial to a baby's health. It's not a morality thing. The Trump government, on behalf of the United States, voted against the resolution just as the infant formula manufacturers had asked him to do. And then there was Trump's pardon this week of two Oregon cattle ranchers who had been convicted of arson after taking part in an armed takeover of federal wildlife refuge for six weeks, two years ago. The men had set fire to federal lands in a feud with the government over grazing rights. They had been ordered to prison for five years, the minimum sentence since the men are popular figures in their community. These two white men, convicted of arson and terrorism, are now pardoned by a president who says he's stopping immigration to fight crime. Trump himself might be fighting with the Fed soon, specifically the IRS, which frowns on tax cheats. It begins with that lawsuit by the New York Attorney General's office that accused Trump of the Trump Foundation of using that non charity for business and for a political campaign, both of which are highly illegal. I reported on this two weeks ago. Well, since then, the New York AG has forwarded its lawsuit to the IRS, including four tax returns signed by Trump himself declaring that he had provided no false information under penalty of perjury. Trump had sworn to the U.S. government with his signature that none of the money had been used to benefit his business or him personally, and that was not true. The New York AG found enough evidence contradicting those promises and also found a political donation which is why these findings were also passed along to the Federal Elections Commission. Trump has survived a lot. Can he survive the IRS? The latest attack on health care, the gaydar machine, farewell cocoa, and those birds look drunk in the third and final segment up next. Hair today, gone tomorrow, right? Did you know two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35? I didn't the hairline recedes, a little bald spot appears. And what's that going to look like in a year from now or two years? Maybe you'd like to keep the hair you have as long as possible. Pro tip, don't buy the stuff at convenience stores and gas stations. Buy the stuff from medicine and science, okay? Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. forhims.com connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. 4 is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness. There's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and it's all much faster. Just answer a few quick questions, the doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is amazing. Right now, my listeners get a one-month trial of HIMS for just five bucks and save hundreds, of dollars on doctor and pharmacy visits see their website for more details this is a very limited offer so hit pause right now and go to forhims.com/bbnc i'll spell it f o r h i m s.com/bbnc forhims.com/bbnc This week, the Trump administration took two more big swipes at health care. It stopped billions of dollars in payments to health insurance companies owed that money under the Affordable Care Act. The payment for 2017 is due this fall to the tune of nearly $10.5 billion. The U.S. District Court in New Mexico has ruled that the administration's reasoning is arbitrary and capricious. The health insurance industry says stopping those payments will hurt small business folk and the people who buy their own coverage. And the industry says it will also cost taxpayers more through bigger premium subsidies. The Blue Cross Blue Shield says it will create more turmoil in the insurance market, with premiums going up again, significantly, by double digits. But wait, there's more. The Trump administration is also slashing, again, the money that helps nonprofit groups help people sign up for Affordable Care Act coverage. As soon as he took office, Trump cut that funding by 80% and cut the ACA's advertising budget by 90%. He's back for another round of cuts, slashing the Affordable Care Act that would not die without help twice just this week. We learned over the holiday break that an HPV test is better than a pap smear at detecting cancer. Specifically, the HPV test is better than a pap smear in detecting precancerous changes in the cervix. HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection. Most of the time, our immune systems eliminate it, but not always. And when that doesn't happen, lesions form and eventually become malignant. Most medical groups recommend women in the U.S. get both the HPV test and the pap smear, although there's now talk of dropping the pap smear altogether. It's the heat that killed about three dozen people in the unexpected target of Quebec. It was 95 and humid with smog when the elderly passed away. 18 more people died in Montreal, seven in the eastern townships, and more in other locales as warmer weather crept unusually far north. A lot of people have already gone on vacation this year, and more will do the same by Labor Day, maybe even over the December holidays. And that's good. Not enough of us are doing it. It's good to take a break. But it's only good while you're on the break. A new study says stress levels do go down during a vacation and workers do get re-energized. But the study shows what most of us already know, the benefits vanish the minute we go back to work or within a few days after that. One in five of us say we remain stressed even during the vacation. More than one in five of us keep working, at least more than we had planned. GADAR is real and now maybe machines can have it. Facial recognition technology has been used by a psychologist to read a person's sexuality and politics by analyzing the face. And politics. And what if he's right? What if the machine is really accurate? Michael Kaczynski says his accuracy rate is in the 80s and 90s. But quoting him, I was shocked to discover it's so easy. At about this time last year, this young Stanford psychology professor was in Moscow, demonstrating his machine to members of Vladimir Putin's cabinet, according to an article in The Guardian. Medical marijuana, a hit with seniors, screams the headline. A new survey of senior citizens who take the properly dosed medical marijuana for pain say they'd recommend it to others. I was on Percocet and replaced it with medical marijuana. Thank you, wrote one senior. Another wrote, it's allowed them to function again, adding, it has not completely taken away the pain, but allows me to manage it. The biggest complaint was the price. Insurance doesn't cover it because it's still federally illegal. But we learned something else in this survey, that following the prescribed dose is very important. Experience has taught that too little won't help the pain, and too much can actually make the pain worse. Passings and passages. First, we mourn the four journalists and co-worker who were shot to death as they did their work at a legacy newspaper in Maryland. The suspect is a man who had feuded with the paper and a lot of other institutions. But the shooting came in the midst of an administration that has called the media fake and the enemy of the people. Singer-songwriter Elvis Costello has canceled the last six dates of a European concert tour to battle a very aggressive form of cancer. The good news is... The cancer is small enough to operate, and the doctor calls Costello lucky enough to play the lottery. Costello has been treated and is currently recovering. The Marvel comic book movie and TV empire and other filmmakers and fans were mourning the death of Steve Ditko, whose drawings co-created Spider-Man. But Ditko parted ways with Stan Lee and Marvel in the late 60s and never really profited from his creations that continue today into the billions of dollars. Steve Ditko died at home at age 90. Actor-singer Tab Hunter was gay long before it was tolerated, even in Hollywood, and despite Tab Hunter's secret, he became a heartthrob in the 1950s. Hunter remained closeted throughout his career until he felt safe to come out in 2005. Tab Hunter was set on dates set up by the studio with starlets Debbie Reynolds and Natalie Wood while Hunter was actually dating actor Anthony Perkins. Tab Hunter died Sunday at age 86. A huge weekend at the movies. Ant-Man and the Wasp were tops of the box office over the weekend, selling $76 million in tickets in the U.S. and Canada. Worldwide, $161 million. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was second with $29 million. Incredibles 2 was third with $28 million. And in ninth place, the Mr. Rogers story, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is now the highest-grossing documentary of the year so far. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Also passing this week, Turner Stokes. Stokes tried skinny dipping as a kid and again with his wife after their kids had grown and moved away. It was then that Stokes says he realized nudism could benefit mankind and he became a top advocate for it in the United States. His political action committee kept him clothed in Washington, D.C., where he's been described as an omnipresent figure. We're not sure Stokes would have approved of even more public nudity, but a Vermont man seemed to get the spirit of it. The heat index was 102 when a man strolled through downtown Burlington wearing nothing but a hat and sneakers. He wouldn't give his name, but when he was asked why, he answered, it's very hot, Coco the gorilla has died at age 46. She passed in her sleep. Coco was known and loved for her ability to genuinely communicate with humans. She was born in the San Francisco Zoo on July 4, 1971, with the name Hanabi Ko, which is Japanese for fireworks child. She met stars over her lifetime, including William Shatner and Robin Williams. Coco lowered her head and her lip quivered when she was told her friend Robin had died. Coco had a 40-year friendship with the psychologist who had taught her an adapted version of sign language. With that language, they and others teased and loved each other. They say Coco loved baby dolls and kittens. And our final passage of the week is Toys R Us, which closed its last stores in the final week of June. The employees in Raleigh, North Carolina, say they spent that final Friday boxing up the unsold toys for an anonymous buyer who put up one million dollars and then donated the toys to needy children. Well sure the french fry bag is soaked with grease but the McDonald's cheeseburger looks about as it did when it was purchased six and a half years ago. The homemade burger and fries Dave put next to that on a shelf at the same time have long since rotted five years ago. But on the six and a half year old McDonald's burger Even the meat looks new, hard as it may be now. Quoting the seller, Ontario's Dave Alexander, the fries are stunningly good-looking. The last we checked, the eBay bidding for this previously-owned Mickey D's meal was up to $62.65. Oh, and one other thing. Dave says, we live in the country, and we've never seen a fly land on it. Ever. A 30-year-old woman in Alabama named Kayla was in pain, and she was putting on weight drop some weight, said the doctors, and the pain will go away. The doctors were wrong. Unbeknown to them and to her, Kayla had a cyst on her ovary, which was removed once it was found. And with that, Kayla lost 50 pounds. It was a 50-pound cyst. In Minersville, Pennsylvania, the police chief got an envelope containing $3, and the return address was marked Dave Guilty. It was from someone who'd gotten a parking ticket in that jurisdiction and had never paid it for 44 years. The chief is proud the anonymous scofflaw had paid $5 to cover a $2 ticket, presumably to cover interest. But quoting the chief, I can't retire on that. But karma always circles back, often slowly, but sometimes in an instant. Dateline, South Africa, where two poachers entered a game preserve with weapons to kill rhinoceros and cut off their horns. And then those poachers were attacked and killed by lions. Authorities say they could only find a human skull and part of a pelvis afterward. Jorge Bustamante had gotten hooked on weed. The Florida Kingfisher's line snagged something off Pompano Beach, all right, a two-pound package of marijuana. Jorge posted a photo on Instagram captioned, early birthday gift from Pablo Escobar. And then he turned it over to the Coast Guard. And finally, there's an alcohol problem in Britain. Among the birds, seagulls and pigeons and geese have gotten into the waste product from a brewery or a distiller, apparently. An animal rescue group says it's answering more calls about drunken pigeons, confused and staggering and vomiting and falling down drunk. It's gotten so bad, one animal rescuer says their vans now smell like breweries. Local brewers and distillers are being asked to please be more careful with their waste products. In the meantime, it's Gulls Night Out. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comment.